Coming up on this episode, we've got Jeff Thomas, who has traveled well over 1 million miles. That's over 1.6 million kilometers on his motorcycle or various motorcycles. He survives on $8,000 U.S. a year, and he travels all the time. He's got three bikes in three different continents. Stick around for that one. We also have our What We Ride segment, where we look at some products that we use for our riding. As well, we have J.J. Lewis from the Good Adventure Company. He's going to talk about his recent Copper Canyon trip, which sounds incredible. You've got to hear some of these stories. And we have an announcement for you that we promised you last week, something that you could possibly get involved in, something brand new that we haven't done before. And it's really going to be neat, I think, coming up this summer. I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag now. Stay with us. We've got a good one for you. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Alan Carl. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tack. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Witt. Susan Johnson. Jackie Kennedy. Elizabeth Martin. Ted Simon. Era Goregian. And you are on Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it can inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and get this, it has a lifetime warranty, which is brand new. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to fit in your saddlebag, and the crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves. They know what you need when you're out exploring the world. Visit them at cyclepump.com. That's cyclepump.com. Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, or PSSOR, provides world-class motorcycle training. Learn proper off-road riding techniques from the pros at PSSOR for your dirt bike, dual sport, or large adventure bike, and increase your skill and confidence so you're ready to tackle your next adventure. Visit www.pssor.com. That's www.pssor.com. Jeff Thomas was brought up around motorcycles, parents that loved motorcycles. So it was a natural for him to become a courier in London. And as a courier, he racked up almost a million miles. But in 2008, Jeff decided that he was going to take a short motorcycle tour. He was going to take his parents' ashes on his motorcycle to a place that they had always wanted to be, a place that they always wanted to ride, and then ultimately delivering the ashes to his brother who lived in California. When he returned, he found that he had no possessions left. And at that point, he decided to keep going. Jeff has three motorcycles that he keeps on different continents so that he can travel and live on about $8,000 U.S. a year. I spoke with Jeff from his temporary home in Thailand. My name's Jeff Thomas, originally from England, now living between Europe, North America, and um, Southeast Asia. Uh, what I do for a living is whatever anybody will pay me, basically. Um, I prefer traveling to working, so I live as reasonably priced as I can, 
which means I don't have to work a great deal. Um, happy life. Well, Jeff, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for having me, Jim. Where are you located right now? I'm in a little place called Laxi, which is in the north of Bangkok. So um, I'm about two or three miles from what passes as greenery around here. So if, if anybody's ever visited Thailand and seen the sights, I'm as far away from those sites as you can possibly be. So I'm in a little area, it's 100% Thai, apart from me, and that makes it reasonably priced and that suits me just fine. I can be extremely lazy when it comes to working. What's your climate like? Is, is it hot there? Yeah, it's hot. It's got two seasons, hot and dry, hot and wet, um, and, and pretty much nothing in the middle. Uh, and I try to avoid the wet season as much as I can. Um, uh, so during, so that will be through the summer month, through May, um, through to October, um, where I tend to spend more time in Europe and, and North America. You are, as you mentioned, born in, in the UK, and I noted um, that you said you were adopted by a motorcycle-loving family, which I think was probably your start, and I guess they could be blamed <laughs> for you all these years <laughs> later still riding your bikes around. But what really got me is that you worked as a moto courier in London. You racked up almost a million miles. Yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> it, when I first started, it was a career, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Things change, but yeah, mo motorcycle dispatch rider, motorcycle messenger, um, it, everybody who gravitates to that does it as a temporary measure. It's, it's it, it, oh, I'll do this for six months while I'm waiting for something else to come along. Um, and I was in and out of motorcycle dispatch riding for far too many years than was, was good for my health. And you know, you do rack up the miles. Um, but, you know, somebody's paying you to ride a motorcycle all day. Um, they're not paying you very well, um, but it's, it's, it's very much the freedom of the open road. You can t accept jobs, you can decline jobs, and, you know, you meet some fascinating people. You mentioned that it's, it was a career. Is that tongue-in-cheek, or, or was it really a career at that point? No, I mean, it, it ended up as a career, but uh, everybody becomes... Uh, no, no, nobody talks to their career officer at school and they say, well, you know, what do you want to be, Jim? You say, oh, I want to be a, a motorcycle dispatch rider. It's, what do you want to be, Jim? And you say, well, I'm not too sure. I might be an architect. Uh, I might be a radio host. I might be a TV producer. Astronaut. While, yeah, while I'm working that out, what I'll do, I'll go motorcycle dispatch riding for six months <laughs> and see where it takes me. Well, where it takes you is <laughs> to a million miles of you know, delivering urgent documents, stolen money, drugs, semen samples, uh, all around the UK. It's not like a, a cab job then, I gather, because from what I understand with the London cab drivers, they've got to go through this incredible learning process of learning all the roads and, and tests. It can't be like that if people are only doing it for six months. No, it's... When I first started doing it, you did have to have a, a certain amount of knowledge of London, um, but uh, as... As, as the the pay or the income you derive from it decreased, then it ended up as if you could kind of, if, as long as you realize that in London you drive on the left, and if you could walk and chew gum at the same time, you, you would pretty much get the job. Um, and a lot of people would then, as, as GPS came in, a lot of people would use GPS, which is 
often in a big city like London, it's a it's kind of a fool's option because it, it it's your own knowledge and experience that kind of keeps you alive and gets you where you need to be at the right time, rather than you know some sexy voiced girl on your GPS system telling you to go down exactly the wrong road. So is that is that the tinkle of ice in a glass I hear? That's probably my bones when you do a million miles dispatch riding. <laughs> I thought it was the tinkle of ice in your glass. Oh, my mistake. <laughs> it's, it, what time is it now? It's it, it's ten past eight in the morning, and um, I know it's two p.m. somewhere, and the sun's over the yardarm. But uh, I, I'm not going to start drinking yet. <laughs> Having said that, many expats living in Thailand do tend to become alcoholics. Well, you've got to have a hobby. You do, you do. Mind you, when people say I live in Bangkok, they assume I have a different kind of hobby, which is <laughs> nothing could be further from the truth. We, we won't, we won't go there. But I did note in in your your material that um that you have a, a somewhat of an allergy to most forms of work. I I do. I didn't I didn't use it. It's not because I'm lazy. Um, it's just that I prefer doing other things. So I prefer riding motorcycles, meeting people, going to new places. And I can't do that when I'm working. Apart from when I was a dispatch rider, I guess, then that was slightly different. Um, so if I travel slowly and cheaply, that means that I don't have to work so much. So I can kind of put all my, my work into a three or four month period, get that out of the way, and then live for the remaining eight months doing whatever I want to do. And you've never sought uh, help to see if there was any medication you could get for that? or well, Yeah, the, 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 the medication is the motorcycle. Oh, of course. Once, once, you're you're once taking you put it. Once you crash helmet on, the world just vanishes, and then you're in your own little world. Um, and I meet nicer people in my own little world. <laughs> Well, let's step back. The listener now has already picked up that you are a motorcycle traveler and that you live a different lifestyle, which, which I find very intriguing. Back in 2008, that's when it all started for you. You decided to pack up and leave. Tell us about that departure. Well, I'd done a lot of traveling earlier in my life. I kind of did traveling for about eight years, and then I went into kind of marriage, mortgage, divorce, little more marriage, children. And then about 2008, my, my parents had passed away and my, my mother, um, oh, absolutely wonderful person, Barbara, and um, she basically said, look, Jeff, I've got absolutely no regrets in life. So that there are two things that I wish might have happened. And my parents had always ridden motorcycles. A, because in the early years, that's all they could afford. And then in later years, just because it was kind of nostalgic for them, I guess, it harked back to their younger days before kids came along and kind of screwed up their life. Um, so she said she had two, two, two things she wished might have happened. And that was that in all of the years of riding their Triumphs and BSAs, um, they'd only really done it in England and Wales and Scotland, where it tends to rain an awful lot. But She'd visited Northern California and she'd come down Pacific Coast Highway, uh, California 101, in a car. And she wished that just once her and my father could have ridden down a road as beautiful as the Pacific Coast Highway on the Triumph. And the second regret was my brother, shortly after my father died, my brother had moved to San Francisco 
fell in love with an American girl, got married, settled down in a little town called Boonville in Mendocino County. Um, my mum had gone to visit there two or three times and absolutely fallen in love with the place and the people. And my brother had had children, Sam and Willow. So her second wish was that dad could have lived long enough to meet his new grandchildren in Boonville, California. So I just decided there's only one thing I can do. So I pretty much sold everything I owned, um, bought a Triumph Tiger 955i because I thought a Triumph would be suitable, uh, got my parents' ashes, put them on the bike, and rode around the world to, to Boonville in California where we scattered their ashes, and then rode home. <laughs> now, I understand you went to, to Triumph and asked for advice. Did I read that right? Maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, that was a that was a funny story. I I'd already bought the Triumph Tiger, and I'd I was I didn't really know too much about the bike itself. I enjoyed riding it. It was a, a fine bike. So um, so I approached Triumph. I said, "Look, I'm going to go around the world on a Triumph Tiger. Are there any tips you can give me? Any any advice? Things like it has an immobilizer." If I get stuck in the middle of somewhere, how do I bypass the immobilizer? What spare parts do I need to take with me? You know, what, just just general technical advice. And they got back to me, which I didn't expect, and pretty much said, look, you know, the, the Triumph Tiger, it's a street bike wearing an adventure frock, and it won't make it across Siberia. So um, buy yourself a BMW. <laughs> that's that's incredible. Did that come from a dealer or did that come from Triumph? It came. I I, I made the approach via a dealership, and then they got back to me about three days later, having, as they said, contacted the marketing department uh, of Triumph. Um, and when I came back, I was in touch with the marketing department, uh, and they they made no claim to that statement. So. It came to me from the dealer, but apparently that was from Triumph's marketing department. They didn't want to be associated with a journey that might go wrong and show one of their bikes to be unreliable. As it turned out, I had to change a headlight bulb, and that's the only thing that happened. Well, then that confirms their fear. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it was a disaster. I mean, I bet you'd get a completely different response from Triumph now. I mean, they seem really dialed in. They're, They're putting out some fantastic bikes, from what I understand. They, they are, they are, and I love Triumphs, and I just thought it was kind of the funniest thing, especially because when I eventually made it to Vladivostok um, in, in the east of Russia, Magadan was closed at the time, so I ended up in, in Vladivostok. None of the BMWs or KTMs that were trying to cross the BAM or the AMO actually made it under their own steam. They end, all ended up in, coming into Vladivostok on the back of trucks. Mm-hmm. I just rode in with a Triumph and changed the headlight bulb. Where next? <laughs> Let's talk about your trip. So 2008, you leave. Was the idea to travel endlessly around the world? The idea was to travel quickly around the world, quickly as in six months. So I'd figured with my rudimentary math that it would take about 25 weeks, 25 countries, 25,000 miles, and I could spend around about 20, 20 pounds a day, so about 30 US dollars a day, uh, and that would get me back to England, at which point I'd then go back to work. So it was a, it was a six-month window, 
um, through the summer of 2008. And that was the plan. It was never meant to be endless. Um, but sometimes circumstances have a way of, of changing your life, often for the better, as long as you embrace it. And where did you go? You, you left the UK. And what was your first destination? So I, I left the Ace Cafe in London. And then down, I wanted to get through Western Europe quite quickly, uh, A, because it's quite expensive and I didn't have too much money. So I, I called my adventure poor circulation, circulating the world with, with very little money. So I went down kind of France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, um, Italy, and then into Slovenia and, and the Balkans, which is where it became less a holiday and felt like it was now turning into more of kind of an adventure. Now, you've continued on from there and, and somehow, well, how did you? How did you get the bug for, for continuing forever or, or at least until this point? My house burned down. <laughs> so you're in the middle of Siberia at this point. Did you get a notification from someone saying, hey, guess what? <laughs> you, you no longer have any stuff, the last little bits you have, or, or did you come back to find that out? Yeah, I, I was sat in um, an internet cafe in Irkutsk, and uh, I, I opened an email from my daughter, and Hannah at the time, I think, was she must have been 15. And it was... We were communicating on a regular basis, and it was kind of, oh, this has happened to this boy this boy band, and you should be listening to this music, and this girl at school has been a, a right bitch. Uh, oh, and by the way, your house has burnt down. So I, I, I thought it was, you know, kind of teenage exaggeration. Somebody's burnt some toast next door or something of that nature. And I really thought nothing else about it. Now, I didn't own the house. I only rented it. Um, and I wasn't even renting it while I was traveling, but everything I owned that I hadn't sold was stored there. And of course, because I'm traveling, I, I don't have insurance. And when I eventually did get back uh, to London, I, I rode out to Essex and yeah, the, the whole place had gone. So everything that I now owned in the world, apart from one suitcase that I had stored with friends, which was family mementos, birth certificates, that kind of thing, thankfully, um, everything was gone. So everything was now loaded on the bike so I decided well I can either cry about this or just keep on traveling with what money I have remaining and see where it takes me and now you've managed to continue riding continue traveling and you're doing it for somewhere around eight thousand dollars US a year yes yes how do you manage to do that well it's I use eight thousand dollars a year for me and $2,000 a year for my flights. So as long as I travel in an area that's reasonably priced and travel slowly, and now I do more micro-adventures rather than big adventures, it means that I can work for about three or four months a year and then live a reasonable existence on kind of four or $500 a month as long as I'm in an area like where I am now, Southeast Asia. And what it means is that I travel very slowly. I travel on a local motorcycle. I live a local lifestyle. Um, and it, it beats working for a living. You just learn more. I found that when I was riding big motorcycles, if I'm riding a larger motorcycle through Asian villages, 
I pull up on a motorcycle that the kids have got photographs or posters of on their wall. Now I'm riding in on a little scooter. I'm riding in on a bike that they've got a newer version sat in the garage. So nobody gives a damn about my bike. So previously, I was almost seeing a pantomime of life that was put on for the guy on the big bling motorcycle, their, their aspirational dream. Now, nobody gives a damn. They don't even know I'm not Thai or Lao or Khmer until I take my helmet off. So I see life as it really is rather than the pantomime that they put on for the, the big traveler. That's interesting that you, you mentioned that now because um, on our other show, ARR Raw, we had uh, had a discussion, as a roundtable discussion, we talked about just that. Does bling affect your ride? And, and there's mixed reviews on it, but that's interesting. So you found, and when I say affect your ride, I mean, does it affect your reception when you go in somewhere? And that was sort of what I had thought. I thought, geez, you know, you've got to be treated differently if you're showing up on this very expensive machine. But that's proof in point right there is what you're saying. It's, it's, changed, your, um, it's changed your experience for travel. It has, and, and I'm perhaps fortunate enough to having gone to the same places twice. So I've, I've been on the Big Bling motorcycle, and then I've been back on the scooter, and two totally different experiences. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the places you've been to. So you've, you've been to Siberia. Um, where else have you been? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> oh, I mean, not, well, not, not listing every country, but I mean, you know, what, what sort of places? Have you been to Africa? Have you been to North America? I, I did quite a lot of traveling in Africa um, in the mid-80s, so Africa, the Middle East, the Far East. I haven't done South America at all yet. I've done most of Europe, most of Eastern Europe, um, through Russia. I've done India, Pakistan, Nepal. Um, yeah. the, the only places that I haven't been are really kind of, haven't done anything in South America. Um, Everywhere else, I've I've been if only for flying visits. I understand that um, your dad had wanted you to join the army, but as you said, uh, <laughs> he didn't specify which one. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, he. he I guess I'm I'm profoundly dyslexic, uh, which meant that I kind of struggled at school, but dyslexia wasn't a thing back then. Um, so it was just, I was just a dim child, basically. So perhaps dad realized I wouldn't amount to much. So he's, oh, Jeff, you should join the army, join the army. And as I say, he didn't say which army, uh, but the army of Saudi Arabia were paying an awful lot more than the British army. And I figured, well, they never go to war. So I'll join the Saudi army. So I joined the Saudi army actually as a civilian, and I spent... I think six or seven years uh, based in Saudi Arabia with the Ministry of Defense and Aviation and uh, had an absolute ball. I loved it. I didn't realize you could even join as a foreigner. I thought they would refuse you right off the bat. It depends what they want. Um, I obviously lied about my skill sets um, <laughs> and, and they employed me. Um, what I was doing, I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I was I wasn't in any way picking up guns and shooting at people. I, I'm 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 an atheist pacifist. So what I'm doing in the world's most extreme monarchy <laughs> in their army kind of beggars belief. But um, I basically I was almost a hotel manager. 
And what I did, I ended up looking after the upper echelons of society, uh, mostly from the military or the royal family and international royal families, whenever they had an illness that took them into hospital. And I became kind of the ship's chandler and kind of took care of them uh, as far as their kind of residential and food needs were concerned and more their entourage. So if um, my first day there, President Barre of Somalia came in, he wasn't a problem, he was in a coma. So the doctors took care of him, but he brought his whole government with him. So I had to look after kind of 95 ministers and their wives. And it was just an interesting six or seven years. And then unfortunately, they went to war. I don't do wars. I'm just wondering how you get that position. <laughs> how did you qualify for that position? I had a friend who was working for a hospital uh, for the Saudi Ministry of Defense. So he just gave me a contact. I basically sent them my CV and they said, come for an interview in London. So I went for an interview in London and about two weeks later, they just said, okay, there's the application form for you, your work visa. Um, come down and we'll expect you in Riyadh in, in six weeks time. So six, six weeks later, I landed in Riyadh, and um, the rest is history. I have some stats here that our producer found about you, I, I think from your blog. Three bikes on different continents, three arrests, 19 bribes paid, three fights, 19 punctures. Let's yeah. start with the three different bikes. Okay. So I, my main bike, that I started with in 2008 is a Triumph Tiger 955i. I bought it from somebody who was registered blind. Now, I thought that's why he was selling the bike, and I found it on eBay. When I won the auction, I think I paid £3,000 or $5,000 for it. I went up to collect it. He'd done 3,500 miles on this bike and was registered blind before he purchased it, which probably accounted for why it was covered in so many scratches and so reasonably priced. So that was the bike that I did. I used to go around the world on. And then in America, in about two, it was 2010, I was in Northern California for the summer helping my brother and his, his wife to build a new house. As payment for me helping them to build the house, they bought me a Kawasaki KLR 650, which I think was a thousand US dollars. And then the next summer when I came back to um, Southeast Asia in Bangkok, I bought, it's called a Tiger Retro 110, which is the Thai built copy of the Honda Super Cub C90. And I think that cost me about $500. So I've got the three bikes, and it's cheaper for me to fly to meet a motorcycle than it is to ship a motorcycle. None of them are worth you know, a great deal of money. And it's just fun. So pretty much all of my world, apart from the motorcycles, weighs 23 kilograms. So I can put it into one hold or check it onto a flight take my hand luggage with my camera and my PC and my crash helmet and just travel to meet the bike. 
And that fits the the lifestyle that you have too, because you said if you're spending two thousand dollars on flights, if you're flying your bike back and forth, of course, that's going to eat up far more than that. Um, but here you're able to jump around and, and have a bike sitting there waiting for you. It's a great way to do it. But the alternative is that I work for ten months and travel for two months. So I, if I work for ten months, I can earn more money, which means I could then have a nicer bike and pay to ship that, you know, from when I finish on one continent to the next continent. But I've only got a, that only gives me a two month window for traveling each year. I, I, I have no wealth, I have no assets, so I need to work to live. But if I live cheaply, it means that I can squeeze the work time into four or five months and then travel for the rest of the time. How long do you think you're going to keep doing this? Well, I've got no plans to retire and no means of retiring. So I'll keep doing it as long as long as I'm healthy enough to do it and as long as I can get the kind of casual work. So I, I do a lot of work in construction. I used, to, I used to do a lot of writing and still do. But now more and more people are writing and more and more publications are going to kind of internet-based. You don't earn the income that you used to. Um, so I do a lot of work in construction and, and various jobs. As long as I can physically do that and people are still willing to pay me, then I'll just keep doing, why, why retire from a lifestyle rather than retiring from a job? Yeah, and really, I mean, you're living while you're physically able to do it. I mean, that, that's so important because not everybody makes it to those golden years. No, I'm, what am I? I'm 54, I think. Um, reasonably healthy, not because I work out, but because I'm just generally quite active. And I guess I've been fortunate with my health. Sure, I'm, I, I no longer have the body I used to in my 20s and getting out of bed in the morning takes a little longer than it used to and when I bend down to tie my shoes I'm at an age now where I think while I'm down here is there anything else I need to do <laughs> but I, I, I must I, hopefully I've got another five years another 10 years but at some point I probably will have to stop riding motorcycles um, and I have no plan at the end of that I don't know what I'll do Hopefully I won't vegetate. Three arrests, what happened there? <laughs> None of them my fault. Um, I got, I'm trying to think what the three were now, it kind of fades into memory. The big one was I got arrested leaving Russia. Um, and what had happened, I'd entered, I was going to enter Russia by riding through Georgia. But as I arrived on Georgia's southern border, the Russian army arrived on the northern border and then they all hell broke out. So I backtracked and took a ferry across the Black Sea from Trabzon in Turkey to Sochi in Russia. Now, this is many years before the Winter Olympics. But eventually I, I got into Russia. I had my, I think it was a 90-day business visa. And they eventually stamped me in. And then I, I rode across Russia as, as, as one does. I eventually got down to Vladivostok. I was coming to leave Vladivostok, or just south of Vladivostok, a little port called Zarabino, on the Dongchung Ferry. So I came to leave. They looked at my passport. You're fine. You're fine. But apparently, the bike 
the tiger had only been allowed into Russia for 14 days but all the paperwork was in Russian and as soon as I got into the country I just kind of filed it away and not thought about it so they wouldn't let me leave and I'm saying well it's the bike's problem not mine but apparently we're married it was a Friday evening so they said on Monday you'll appear in court I think wow this is a little serious so they said you've actually left Russia so we need to detain you but they couldn't find the key for the cell and the cell was locked so they said look you can take your bike but promise to come back on Monday so I said sure so I hung out in Zarabino for three days came back on Monday appeared in court they gave me an interpreter and it was a lot more official than I thought it was going to be they found me guilty even though there were mitigating circumstances I had to pay a fine which it was a couple of thousand rubles I seem to think that was about 30 US dollars at the time um, and then they stamped me out of Russia with the bike and deported me on the Dongcheng ferry which I believe no longer exists and sent me down to Sokcho in um, South Korea but I didn't pay anything so I'm guessing getting deported from a country <laughs> is far cheaper than leaving into your own state. And I, but I, I'm if you still planned that, it couldn't be better. But I, I'm still not entirely sure what happened. Can I revisit Russia? I, that was four passports ago. I, I don't know. I don't uh, know. That's what I, wanted, yes. that's what I wanted to ask you was, uh, do you feel you can get back into Russia? I think now it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, as I say, that was... Three or four, at least three or four passports ago, and I don't think it would. And, and I absolutely loved Russia. Not so much the people wearing Russian uniforms, but everybody else in Russia was absolutely fantastic. And that was perhaps my expectations of Russia were wrong, but the people were just absolutely amazing. And you know, it's a pretty large country. We talked not long ago, I think it was on Raw as well, about bribes and, and should you pay them or should you not? And, and of course, this is a, a topic that many people debate. Some people think you should just pay them to get through quickly and, and deal with it. And, and so what if they make a little money off it? Other people say, no, you know, you shouldn't pay. But clearly you are a payer because you paid these 19 bribes. Is that the general way you would do it when, when you end up dealing with someone who's asking you for a bribe? You just figure, okay, pay them. Do you pay them full price? Do you try and talk them down? What do you do? It all depends if, because I've paid 19 bribes, most of them are local Southeast Asian bribes and bribes are everything. It's just part of the fabric of society out here and it's, it's a couple of dollars here, a couple of dollars there. Um, the, my view is that I try to avoid paying the bribe, especially if I know they're in the right. Um, and the way that I've got out of paying bribes is that um, I got in, I think it was my first or second day traveling in Russia and the police pulled me to the side of the road because I'd crossed a double white line. Uh, there was no double white line and obviously it was a, it was a, a bribe trap. Um, and I just figured that he's going to be w at work for eight hours. I've got three months to cross Russia, so I'm just going to sit here and wait. And eventually I paid a few dollars and, and off I went. But often bribes are quite funny. I, um, I was in 
um, Albania and ended up staying at this guy's house who I'd never met before and I was making my way to Kosovo so he got my map out I don't use GPS I just have some old maps and he said look Jeff what you need to do is we're going to go up into the mountains from Škoda to um, Lake Koman I think it's called and then the ferry will whisk you along Lake Koman it's absolutely beautiful and drop you off in Kosovo so I think yeah, that sounds great I, I love ferries I love lakes I'm going to see things that you can't see from a road so he takes me up into the mountains and then points me in the right direction and I keep going keep going and eventually found this dock where there'll be a ferry to take me into Kosovo so I, I buy my ticket and it costs me one euro one dollar and then a uniformed guy comes up passport showing the passport, takes it away with my papers, brings it back, there's a mark in my passport, there we go, 10 euros to leave Albania. Okay, it's very good. Paying the 10 euros, puts another stamp, and then stamps my receipt, gives me my passport, enjoy your journey. The ferry eventually arrives, takes about seven hours down the lake, into Kosovo, they keep me back on the ferry after everybody else has come off. Another customs officer comes on. Passport. Okay, fine. Stamp. Document. Stamp. 10 euros. Welcome to Kosovo. Anyway, riding away from the ferry, I'm thinking the roads in Kosovo are as bad as the roads in Albania. I couldn't work it out until I got about 20 kilometers down this track. And then realized I was still 50 kilometers inside bloody Albania. <laughs> You've been really fleeced. <laughs> I'd been fleeced, but it was so funny. That is the best 20 euros I've ever spent. <laughs> it was, I'm just thinking, the nerve of them. And it was so well orchestrated. And I just thought, that's fantastic. You know, if I ever have grandchildren, that's what they'll learn. You know, take 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 bribes in your stride. Try and avoid them, but don't get bent out of shape. You know, and we're we're not here to change the way different societies work. Elected governments will change the structure of police forces and the pay structures, etc. We can't change that. If we refuse to pay a bribe, it's not going to stop them from you know fleecing the next person that comes along. So just, it's part of the cultural fabric. Just kind of go with the flow. Use your instincts, but just realize that you're on holiday, but in four or five hours' time, they're going to have to go home for their dinner. Now, you've put together, I think, a book and a half, uh, is what you'd said. Tell us about those. Yeah, I, I wrote... The, it was going to be one book about my journey around the world, but so much happened that it wouldn't compress in, into one volume without leaving too without leaving too many details out because everything's interconnected it's kind of cause and effect and actions and consequences so I wrote the first book which was Poor Circulation Ashes to Boonville um, and that came out in 2014 I think and the second book will be Homeward Bound which is about my journey from Boonville back to London to find out my house and burnt down and then the third volume will be the accidental pilgrim which is where I set off for an 
another two months on the road, which turned out to be another seven years and, and counting. But I'm a very messy writer, a very slow writer. And I realized that I could, if I wanted to sell books and make money, it would become a full-time job. And we've already discovered that I've got an aversion to work of, of that kind. I prefer the freedom. So the book's available on Amazon. And every time somebody buys one from um, Amazon in the US, I lose $1 out of my bank account. So every book I sell costs me $1. And the way that that works is that I think Amazon sell the book for, I don't know, $16. Amazon and CreateSpace. So Amazon sell the book, CreateSpace produce the book. CreateSpace are owned by Amazon. They keep $12, they give me $4. But because they think I'm gonna run away without paying US tax, they withhold $2. So they only send me $2. Every time they send me $2, my bank in the UK charges me $3 for an international money transfer. <laughs> so please, don't buy my book. Don't buy the book. You're, you're clearly not a businessman. No, I, I, I never would be. I'm not smart enough to be a businessman. Um, but, you know, I, I enjoy writing, uh, but I hate having to write. I enjoy writing for myself. But, I mean, the, the, the book's fun. Um, there was an electronic version, but I, I've got a few problems with Amazon at the moment, not just about that side of it but hopefully it'll be back out as an e-version and when I've actually got the e-file back I'll probably just distribute it free of charge and then my next one will be a bestseller then I'll retire and go and live next door to JK Rowling or something so you're you also have a blog though where people can go and read about your adventures yeah again uh, it, it started off with good intentions and it was updated regularly now but that that was before social media um, so I, I was writing the blog, I think, starting in 2007. So I didn't know what Facebook was, or Twitter, Instagram, or any of our kind of instant gratification news. That just kind of wasn't there. Or if it was, it wasn't something that I was aware of. Um, whereas now, I guess most of what I do comes through kind of Facebook and, and Twitter. Uh, so I, I, I do neglect the job. Of, uh, updating the blog. The story you tell about getting uh, losing a dollar for every book you sell. I mean, I knew that writers are not making what they used to. <laughs> you even mentioned it there. No, but, but, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Bezos and Amazon are doing, Amazon are doing fairly well. Yeah, that's right. They're doing, they're doing great, and and the writers are not getting much. I've heard little stories about that and grumblings about that before, not to the extent that you have, and and clearly some of it is set up because of banking and and tax and whatever. But still, it, it illustrates a, a greater point. But well, you've done, uh, I guess, well over, now what is it? You, you've done um, well over 1.1 million miles so far, which is about a, a one and three quarter million kilometers. And how much more do you think you have to go? Probably not too many. Hey, um, because my bike only does 45 miles per hour. Um, but no, one thing that I learned was on my big journey around the world, I traveled too fast. And too long a distance between stops and you miss 
all the good stuff that's in the middle. And it's it's the stuff that's not on the tourist maps that becomes fascinating. So if you can do 20 kilometers a day, hang out in villages, see what's happened, don't have a hotel booked, you'll always find something. Just travel slowly, do a few miles, and you meet people and you form relationships. When you travel quickly, you're passing through other people's lives. When you slow down, they're passing through your life and you learn an awful lot more about what's really happening. And the elephants in the room, whether it be kind of politics, whether it be economics, they start to come out and you really do start to, to learn and, and become involved. And I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but you do have more of an effect on somebody's life by spending more time with them and understanding the challenges that they face and being around long enough to do a little bit or to put a little bit back. I, I was accidentally British, so I've got a British passport. That gives me unfettered access to 95% of the world. If I'd been accidentally Thai or Khmer, you know, I, I'd have access to 5% of the world and the rest would be determined by where I could get a visa for. We are just so lucky. Adventures and journeys are like food and everybody has different tastes. So there's nothing at all wrong with, you know, wanting a BMW GS 1200 and, and all of the equipment and you travel quickly compared to me who's putting a rucksack on and jumping on a C90. They're just different adventures. And one thing that does concern me is it, it almost becomes like American politics with kind of the left and the right and kind of no middle ground. Everybody ought to just kind of get over themselves and get out there and enjoy it and have some fun. Jeff, thank you very much. Right, fantastic. And to you, Elizabeth, thanks for everything you're doing here. And uh, thanks for inviting me on. I've been speaking with Jeff Thomas. You can find out more about Jeff and his travels by visiting his website, www.poorcirculation.blogspot.com. And of course, you can always check the show notes for this episode. We'll have a link to his website in those show notes. And you can find his book, as he said, you can find it on Amazon, Ashes to Boonville, Poor Circulation 1. And of course, as he said, it'll cost him a dollar if you buy it on Amazon.com. Stitch has been making riding gear for 33 years, over 33 years. Think about it. Designing, making, and selling gear. I've already told you before, they make incredible gear. I've got a set of their panniers that I've had on the front of my bike for a long time. I put them through rigors like you would not believe, and they're they're really, they're, they're hardly any different from when I got them new. These things are amazingly durable, and that's the Aero Stitch quality. We're talking about a company that is made up of riders themselves. They're so confident in their products, and it's because so many people have tried them. They are Already know what they're like. They've been around the world. These are, again, high-quality products. They've got this guarantee out now. If you try an AeroStitch one-piece R3 or Roadcrafter suit for one month and you're not riding more than you did before you received it, you can send it back and get a full refund 
no questions asked. Visit their website for the details on it. But basically what they're saying is that suit is going to change your life. If it makes you ride more, then it changed your life. And that says something about Aerostitch quality. Visit them at www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. Now make sure you put in the forward slash ARR because of course that lets them know that you came from Adventure Rider Radio and that you did hear them here. And anytime you're dealing with them or any company that you hear on the show, please let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Now if you go to that website and you buy something from them using that forward slash ARR, you're going to get 10% off your first order. Now think about it. If you're buying a riding suit, that is a big chunk of money. And if you're a repeat customer, you're going to get free shipping anywhere in the U.S., www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. Well, I told you I have an announcement for you. Here it is. You've heard of our new show, Raw, ARR Raw, and you know you have to go to our website and you can download that and listen to it again for free. It's Roundtable Discussions. Well, we've done a couple episodes already and now we're looking towards the summer. Now, The announcement is that we're actually going to be recording ARR Raw live at a hub meet in the cusp in British Columbia on Friday, August 26th. So here's what it is. It's the Horizons Unlimited meet. You know, Grant and Susan have Horizons Unlimited. They have the meets all around the world. Well, this one's happening in the cusp of British Columbia from August 25th to August 28th, 2016. It's happened there before, and it's quite a popular event. At that event on the Friday, at the same time we normally record, which is 1 o'clock in the afternoon, at that event we're going to be recording ARR Raw Live. Now some of our panelists that are normally on the show may be at the show or they may be connected through the internet, but the audience will have time to participate or, or be able to participate. And it's going to be a great thing. It's going to be something we've never done before. So who knows? It could be it could be a total blast. It could be a comedy. <laughs> we'll have to see what happens. So if you can make it, come to British Columbia in August, August 25th to 28th. It's gorgeous riding area. So you will not go wrong. Absolutely stunning place to go riding. Come camp out. Check out the hub event. You can look at the uh, the event itself on the Horizons Unlimited website, horizonsunlimited.com forward slash events and go down to the the Can West is what it's called, Can West in the cusp. Check it out. We'd love to have you there. So that's it. We're going to be recording live. You get to see us actually doing what we do, well, sort of every day, but only with ARR Raw. Come and join us. Hope to meet you there. Giant Loop makes incredible bags for motorcycles. Waterproof, extremely durable, with amazing strapping systems. If you've got a dual sport bike and you want the ultimate in an adventure bag, a soft bag, be it a tank bag or or your panniers, check out Giant Loop, giantloopmoto.com. And I'm going to read a quote for you here from Cycle World Magazine, the November 2015 issue. The best hardcore saddlebag and tank bag solution we've found is from Giant Loop. There are cheaper solutions to carrying stuff, but these American-made pieces have been over mountains and across deserts with no issues, unquote. That is an incredible statement from a magazine that knows because they're testing products all the time. 
Giant Loop is also the exclusive distributor for North America for Rally Raid products. That's the Honda CB500 kits. They've got all the parts and accessories for that. You can turn the Honda CB500, an incredibly reliable bike, into the lightest, lowest seat height, dirt-capable twin-cylinder adventure bike on the market. Make sure on their website, if you're going to buy something, use the promo code ARR. Of course, that means Adventure Rider Radio. That way they know where you came from and anytime you're dealing with them, as well as, like I said, any other companies you're dealing with that advertise here, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It does a lot for our show. GiantLoopMoto.com Well, this segment is called What We Ride Gear Review, and it's where we take bits of gear that we use, that we actually ride with, and stuff that we're interested in, and try it out and let you know what what we think of it. And some of the stuff is things we've used for years, and some of it may be brand new. So let's have a look at what we've got for you today. That's the sound you don't want to hear. It's always a drag when you get a flat on a motorcycle. If you're off-road or if you're on dirt roads or back roads or maybe even on your own somewhere, you got to have some way. In my mind, you absolutely have to have your own way of repairing your tire and pumping it up. And that leaking tire brings me to today's gear review, and that's the Easy Air Tire Gauge and the Cycle Pump by Best Rest. Now, I've had a chance to try out both of these units a fair bit, and uh, this is what I found so far, but I'm going to keep using them. I'm going to keep them in the panniers. They are going to be my go-to air pressure gauge and pump, and I'm going to let you know what it's like long-term, but this is what I've found so far. Okay, so right off the bat, let me tell you a little bit about the, uh, the cycle pump here. It comes from Best Rest Products, one of the supporters of our show. And um, I've been interested in the cycle pump for a long time. I've only recently got one. They were good enough to send one for us to try. It comes in this really nice bag, a bright uh, red bag. It's um, a heavy nylon, just a a very heavy-duty bag with some good wide strips of Velcro. Opening it up, it has this big long strap, a Velcro strap, to strap all the cord and the tube in, which is really important, I think. When you've got a whole bunch of cord and you've got tube there that you want to push back into the bag, it just makes it a lot neater if you can strap it together. So what it comes with, the, right, from the, right from the factory, it comes with two different plug setups. One is a regular cigarette lighter plug that you can plug in. Um, it's got a little adapter on it that you can take off to fit into the BMW plugs. And the other one's alligator clips with a, a fuse built in line. And you can clip this right to your battery. But what I'm doing is, because it uses just a standard automotive SAE two-prong plug, uh, I just plug it into the same spot that I have for my heated vest for my passenger. And um, it works quite well. So I pull out my, my heated vest plug. Okay, so there, I plugged in the cycle pump. Now, one of the things with the cycle pump, right off the bat, you'll notice the robust hose that it has on it and it's got a really nice brass chuck on it. A really nice setup. The pump itself is an aluminum case, sort of a rudimentary looking aluminum case. Feels very durable though, 
And um, the aluminum case is part of the, the secret sauce in this thing because it's the aluminum case that helps dissipate the heat. And I'll tell you, one thing that I've had experience with with pumps is pump failure after pump failure. And, and I'm certain it's to do with heat because they get so hot, you can't hold on to them. And if you've ever had trouble uh, getting a bead to seat or having trouble doing your tire repair and have to pump a lot, that's when the, I found that the cheap pumps fail. As a matter of fact, the worst part about it is, I find, is that the with the cheap pumps... I've used them before for a particular repair, usually helping somebody else where the pump gets run a lot, more than what I'd like to, but it gets quite hot. I put it in the bag, everything's fine. The next time I pull it out and I try to use it, it doesn't work. And I've went through a number of pumps for that very same reason. I've been dealing with 12-volt electric pumps for many, many years now, for both for vehicles and motorcycles. The cycle pump has little legs on it, um, so you can fold down these little aluminum legs. And it's really neat because it holds it up off the ground. I like that. Not only that, the legs are sort of uh, an abrupt edge to them, so it sticks into the ground. It tends to hold there really well because my other pumps I've had always tend to walk around while they run. It doesn't really matter because the hose holds it in place, but it just makes it a little bit nicer unit. What we also have with this is an easy air tire gauge, which I'm sure you've heard talked about at the start of this show. And I'll tell you, all of this feels like really, really nice equipment overall. The easier tire gauge matches the pump in quality, uh, look and feel. It's got really nice brass fittings on it. Um, it's got a, a nice rubber casing around it so you can hold it in your hand. It's, and it's, just, it's palm size. It's got a nice uh, large readout dial on it. One of the great things about the gauge is that it's set up to run with the pump, meaning you put it in line with the pump. And I'll tell you why. It's got a right angle chuck on it that you put onto your valve stem. You connect that to the wheel and then you're holding the gauge. So right now you've got the hose running from your, your valve stem to the gauge and you're holding that in your hand. Then you take the chuck from the pump and you connect it to the gauge. And when you do that, now what you have is a, is a complete circuit from the pump through to the gauge and then through to the wheel. And why this makes such a big difference is that on this brass connector on the gauge is a little button that you can press to release pressure. So you start the pump up by flipping the switch on. It starts to pump air into the gauge and into the valve stem as well, inflating your tire. Once your tire inflates to roughly where you, you think it uh, should be, you shut off the pump and you look at the pressures here. And if the pressure is too high, you just bleed it off by pressing the button. If it's too low, you turn the, the pump back on. It makes it so easy to get the exact pressure. I'll tell you, the whole system is very robust. It's, it's just a very solid feeling system. It's fairly new right now, but I know that what I've read from other people who have ridden around the world with these pumps and used it in all types of situations and weather, the thing is incredibly durable. And so much so that um, they've recently introduced a lifetime warranty for the pump. That's pretty amazing. So you got to be pretty confident in the product if you're going to put a lifetime warranty on it. And David at Best Dressed says there's very few pumps actually come back. And that's why they can afford to do it. The, the pumps are just built so well. The thing is, some people argue about the difference between this and a cheap pump and how, you know, a cheap pump like the slime pump may only cost you $15 or $20 or, or something like that, whereas this one will cost you $100. And some people will think that's worth it to go with the cheaper pump. In my mind, there's no way the cheaper pump is worth it because when that pump fails you, you'd pay somebody $200 to get air when you're stuck on some back road somewhere, especially when it's Sunday night and you've got to get home and you're late for dinner and, and all the other things that always seems to happen. I mean, flat tires never happen or rarely, if ever, happen at a convenient spot or location. So you want reliability. This is a, a really nice setup. 
So back in the studio is my recommendation here is that you get one of these. Uh, and I would say get the tire gauge and the pump. If you can swing it, get both of them because together they make a really nice setup as I've already explained about checking the pressure and setting the pressure on your motorcycle. But I've used them as well to fill up the air pressure um, on our Jeep tires and because we aired them down and brought them back up again. And you know what really sticks on my mind with the pump all the time is the feeling of everything being so solid, especially those brass chucks. They fit so well they work so well the the gauge setup works so well um i highly recommend it and now on the line i have david peterson from best rest products of course who makes the cycle pump an easy air tire gauge and i want to find out just some details really into the background of the cycle pump how it's made and what products are in it david hey jim how are you today i'm doing great so let's talk about the key features that make the cycle pump what it is well um we make it right here in the u.s it's an american-made product a lot of people think that's very important. We're proud of it. It has an armored aluminum case that protects the internal components. That aluminum case also acts as a heat sink to dissipate the heat from the motor. So it keeps the thing cooler. And although you can feel the heat, that's a good thing. Much better than a plastic housing that, that traps all the heat inside. We've got a 18-inch air hose with a locking brass air chuck that comes in two options, a straight chuck or a low-profile right-angle chuck that makes it easier to fit between the spokes and also in the limited clearance between the valve stem and the hub. And you can snake the hose down underneath the big brake rotors so it's easy to attach. And then we have powering options. There's an SAE connector so you could hook up to a uh, battery charger pigtail. You just have to make sure you have at least a 10 amp fuse. Um, we have a set of battery alligator clips so you can connect to any 12 volt battery from motorcycle to car to probably farm tractor. And uh, then we have a power plug that'll fit both a cigarette lighter and a BMW. It's convertible, so you pull the cap off the end and now it fits into the European BMW DIN plug. We have the best performance, uh, we believe. There have been a lot of tests in magazines. Uh, ours seems to inflate faster than any others. And I think the biggest thing that we have going for the cycle pump is we have a lifetime warranty. So if you bought it 10 years ago, it's still covered under warranty. Uh, we made that retroactive. What about the internals for the pump? Um, where do the parts come from? We have our parts uh, made in Illinois by a U.S. manufacturer. Um, they send components to us. We do the final assembly at my shop near Seattle. Um, you know, everyone is put together by a craftsman, uh, one guy that that's all he does is make pumps all day long. And he's made tens of thousands of them, and his uh, handiwork has gone to all corners of the globe. So it's an American product, and uh, we take great pride. We're very careful about what we build. We make sure that it performs, and everyone is tested to make sure it's running properly before it leaves. I was going to ask you about the aluminum case. You, you partly answered it there. Are there any other reasons for the aluminum case? Well, it keeps the crud out. One of the, the uh, Achilles heels of any inflator is getting crud inside the components. Not so much the electric motor, but the, the valve and piston. Um, some inflators use a diaphragm. I mean, that's like a fish tank pump. Uh, we use a, a connecting rod, a motor, you know, crankshaft basically, uh, to, to uh, do the hard, the heavy lifting. And it goes up to a, uh, a reed valve on top of the piston. And every time the piston goes up, uh, a pulse of air goes down the line. So it's the best you can get in that size of a compressor, and uh, it performs 
uh, very well. Is there a duty cycle for it, a length of time that it can run and uh, before having to be shut off? Not really. Um, on the instructions on the case, it says run it for two minutes and then check your pressure. The reason we do that is we don't want people to accidentally overinflate. But in our tests, our failure tests to see if we could break these things, we run them continuously for 30 minutes, you know, filling car tire after car tire. And they kept running. And quite frankly, we got bored and said, well, that's enough of that. Let's go have lunch. And how much power do they draw? They need at least 10 amps. Um, you know, we get customers that buy them, they hook it up to the, the bike, run it in their hand, and they're happy they head off on the trail. Then when they need to use it, they connect it to the bike and they hook it up and they start pumping. And then the thing shuts down. Well, it's not the pump that's shutting down. It's the fuse or, in many cases, the BMW CAN bus power system that they're plugged into. As pressure builds and as, as work is performed, amperage goes up. So you need at least a 10-amp fuse to power things. Um, I run a 10-amp all the time. And uh, I don't think I've ever had an instance where I've popped a fuse because of, uh, you know, amperage running too high. And like I said, amperage is a function of how much pressure. Um, so the higher the pressure, the higher the amperage. And the other thing is, uh, use this analogy. It's easier to blow up a balloon as long as you're not sitting on it. So if you've got the bike sitting on the tire with all your loaded camping gear, and you're inflating, it's going to take more work to fill that tire. So if you can offload the gear or at least get the wheel suspended in the air, it's going to fill faster and take less less uh, amperage. What is the CFM rating for the pump? We don't rate uh, the cycle pump by CFM. That's a rating system that's best used by, you know, tank compressors uh, for guys that want to run a nail gun or uh, use a paint sprayer. Instead, we rate the pump by inflation time. And what we did was take uh, test tires off uh, a BMW 1200, and we ran it through the, the cycle, for instance, uh, on a front tire, which is smaller. Uh, to fill it from 0 to 28 pounds takes two minutes. Uh, from 0 to 37.5 pounds takes three minutes. And to 46 pounds, you wouldn't want to go that high, takes four minutes. On the rear tire, uh, because of the different size, from 0 to to uh, 20 pounds is about two and a half minutes, and from zero to 36 pounds is about five minutes. And we have an inflation chart on the website. But basically, the time it takes to fill the tire is a function of the size of the tire, and uh, you know whether you're you're uh, you've got a lot of weight sitting on the tire. Some say I've read this on a couple of forums that the cycle pump looks exactly the same as others on the inside. I've heard that too. And uh, I guess some might say that a, that a Honda Magna V-Twin looks just like a Harley-Davidson motor. Uh, there are obviously subtle differences. If you held ours up to somebody else's, you say these things look identical, uh, when in fact they're not. We use certain proprietary things that may not be visible to the, to the uh, regular viewer, um, things that we do that uh, give us better performance and, and better longevity. Um, but they're not exactly the same. And how long should they last? <laughs> well, I've got one that from, uh, I think the first one we ever made. And although it's sitting on the shelf, I can take it out and fill a tire right now. I've had customers that have had these for 10 years that have been around the world, you know, two or three times and they're still running strong. 
um, they're covered by warranty. So if there's a failure of some sort, you know, we fix it under warranty. If, on the other hand, it's a service issue, you know, they they need to have it clean because uh, they got dirt in it or uh, something that is above and beyond what we would consider a warranty item, then there might be a small fee for that. But uh, our concern is that the customer be happy that they have 100% confidence in the pump. So we're, we're pretty uh, flexible when it comes to that. With a lifetime warranty, you got to be very sure that, that these pumps are not going to fail very often. Um, is, is the warranty retroactive to people who bought a pump before it became a lifetime warranty? Yes, it is. Yeah, we figured it would be fair to, to run it retroactive. So that guy that had it 10 years, he is covered under the warranty. By the way, we did a study, a uh, statistical study of how many pumps have come in uh, for warranty during all those years. And uh, I don't know, out of 30,000 units, uh, I think we counted certainly less than 50 units in the last 10 or so years. So the, the failure rate or warranty rate is, is uh, it's, it's terribly small. That's one reason why we can give this warranty. They simply don't break. You take care of it. You keep it out of the dirt, keep it out of the water. These things will practically run forever. And, uh, you know, we look to the future. How many warranty claims will we get? And we might get a few, but uh, uh, the number is so small that uh, we're really not concerned about it. We're proud of the fact that we're the only people that offer a lifetime warranty. Yes, you pay more, but you get much more, and it'll last for many years. And uh, tell us about the easy air tire gauge that, that goes along perfectly with this pump. Well, we have what's called the Cycle Pump brand Easy Air Tire Gauge. It's a round dial gauge. Um, it has two air chuck options. One's a straight chuck and one's a right ankle chuck. Same types of chucks as, as available on the Cycle Pump. Uh, you hook up the gauge to the tire, you get a pressure reading. If the pressure's too high, you can bleed it off. If the pressure's too low, leave the gauge attached to the tire and then hook the cycle pump into the side of the gauge. The gauge has got an input valve stem. So you, your gauge is connected, you get a pressure reading, you need to add air, you hook the pump into the side of the gauge, turn on your pump, now you're watching the pressure build in the tire. And that eliminates the need to do uh, the typical add air, check with gauge, didn't get enough, add air, check with gauge, didn't get enough, add air, check with gauge, too much, now I gotta let some out. So this is a one-two punch, and this is really the best method of filling tires that I've ever seen. It's so simple, and it eliminates the need to get down in your belly and crawl around in the dirt while you're trying to get that air check onto the tire valve stem. I've had a lot of pumps over the years that have gauges built in right into the unit, so it shows you the pressure as it's pumping it up. You can shut off, it can show you the pressure. This easier tire gauge is the first one that actually works. <laughs> <laughs> well, think of it this way. Um, it used to be very common that you'd buy a television that had a built-in uh, VCR player and CD player, and that seemed really clever. But if one component fails, basically the whole system fails. Uh, we thought long and hard about that. Do we incorporate a gauge into the pump? And we said, no, we're not going to do that. Um, we're going to do each item to the very best that we can. If we combine them, then we're making compromises in either quality or components and it just wasn't something we were willing to do. So we made them standalone. It's one, two. It's not a uh, homogenized mix. Uh, and we think that's a better way to approach this. You know, if, if your gauge dies, that doesn't mean that your pump dies. 
uh, it's it's either or, and you deal with uh, any particular failure with that item, not not the whole unit. And a lot of these have got a push button switch. We've got the strongest switch in the world. I mean, that thing is has got standoff bushings that protect it, and uh, you know they they just go forever. They're so simple. And that was David Peterson from his shop in Mountain Lake Terrace, Washington. I'm with J.J. Lewis once again from the Good Adventure Company, and J.J. has just returned from what I understand has been an epic trip to the Copper Canyon. So if you heard us talk about it here and you didn't go, well, it sounds like you really missed out and you'll want to get the next one. J.J., how's it going? Jim, it's going great. I'm, I'm just kind of like on this spiritual high coming, coming back from the Copper Canyon. It was just a phenomenal uh, trip. Well, you literally um, yeah. got back just last night or just yesterday afternoon, and this is sort of your first full day back to civilization. That's that's right. That's right. So I'm adjusting back. Well, <laughs> give us some of the highlights. Well, we had 10 riders that went down, and uh, these riders were, were vetted um, by me and a few of the other guys that were going on the trip. And so I, 10 really good riders, um, but all of us were challenged um, – to, to the, to the highest level. I mean, it was a mix of like epic, epic dirt, rocks, um, high elevation routes that, you know, we had to pick up bikes, you know, all of us needed help at one time or another, either picking up our bike or helping us get through, um, you know, some rocky passage. It was absolutely incredible. You know, I had one guy, um, from Palm Springs who went along and uh, this trip was somewhat of a stretch for him off-road, but at every second of a challenge, uh, I witnessed him, and as well as the other guys, but I, I wish I witnessed this, this guy especially just taking on the challenge wholeheartedly, like so, so vividly. Like the, one of the first climbs that we did um, on the dirt was after we crossed this river and it was really hot in the canyon. And so everyone was kind of sitting in the shade. And, and of course they were thinking that the road was going to go left because you could see the road going left. And, and the road ends to the right, heard someone say, and I just sort of had a little bit of laughter. And I said, boys, the road goes to the right. And uh, they were like, no way. I'm like, yeah. And, and so, you know, everybody kind of needed some help getting up. Um, but uh, my guy from Palm Springs named Pat, fired up his, his oil-cooled GS adventure and scouted out his route with his eye. I could see him kind of see the general direction where he was going to go and then just taking off full throttle through this huge rock garden full of boulders, baby heads, <laughs> loose scree, just riding his GS adventure like a rodeo um, bronc up and down. And I thought either he's going to go over the side or this is going to be the most epic thing I've ever seen. It was absolutely the most epic thing I'd ever witnessed in my life. And then he, he also did, um, out, out of Chitty Pass, um, the water was a little bit high, and a few guys were um, kind of going back and forth whether they're going to do this water crossing. So we had one of our, our, our guys who's a really good rider named Michael from New York. He just he went over in his 800 without any problem. We could just see how, how deep it went. And when we saw how deep it went on the other side, I was like, uh-oh. But as soon as I said, uh-oh, 
um, Pat on his GS adventure took off across the water. And this is a pretty wide river. And I, I was shaking my head going, oh, no, when we get when he gets to that deep part, we're in trouble. And, you know, he was going he was going really well until he got to that deep part. And, of course, he drowned his GSA. So um, we were we were having to do a roadside oil change and uh, uh, undo all the filters and, you know, just kind of get it unwaterlogged. But we did that. We were able to source the oil in about uh, 15, 20 minutes, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and uh, things like that happened. Um, you know, one guy broke his chain uh, coming up with the switchbacks from Batopilas. And the next morning, I had a chain uh, delivered via uh, bus to one of the local towns uh, from one of my sources in Mexico. So we were all in awe of just how things fell together for people and how people were stretched to the to the to the very limit. Um, and it, you know, it's kind of like a summer camp experience. Now you're 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 stretched to the the best of times and the worst of times when you're 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 just tired and and and, and want to stop and you're hot and you're sweaty and you're cranky and you. You lose your temper, and we went through all these sorts of experiences. But at, in the end, at the final night, um, sitting around uh, at, at the dinner at the Sea of Cortez, uh, they were saying that this was this was the best ride they've ever had in their whole life, um, and and were just in awe of the the entire experience. So that was a phenomenal phenomenal experience for me. One of the more epic trips I've ever done in my life. You mentioned to me when we talked earlier about um, going through the areas that you found that were a little dodgy before. Yeah, it's always whenever you're down in the Copper Canyon, uh, that's that's where they they grow a lot of different things, um, and so you you do see a lot of um, people with firearms and uh, young kids with AK-47s and those kinds of things, and so it's always the narco territory is always, especially if you're um, going alone, it's always kind of scary. And I've always, everyone I've whenever I've gone through the, those areas, I've always. You know, the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I always get a little bit concerned and uh, scared even and just try to go early and go as fast as I can. Um, but my contacts let everybody know that we were coming down there and that we were coming with goodwill, you know, to help the, the community, especially the kids in Batapilas at the boarding school, um, that we were raising money for them. And so everybody knew that. And so um, they knew we had candy for the kids. And so instead of being stopped in the middle of nowhere of somebody coming out of the bushes with a machete or a, a rifle asking us who we were and where we were going, they stopped us and smiled and pointed at their kids and, our, and, and the bike and wanted the kids to sit on the bike. You know, of course, we gave the kids candy and, you know, it was just a, a, a blessing of goodwill. So I think we kind of made it safer for the folks that are going to be coming after us. Um, who are going to be welcomed, hopefully, as warmly as we were. Uh, in Batopilas, they knew we were coming. And so when we pulled into town, you know, there were, there were narcos with, with, with their rifles, um, but they were waving and giving us high five as we rolled in. The kids were lining the streets. You know, we, we roared up into the square and got out in front of the hotel and uh, were just welcomed with open arms. We went to uh, one of the restaurants I like there named Carolina's, and uh, – she and her husband are really active with the kids in the community, so we, we were partnering with them to help the kids. And when we got to their restaurant, you know, every place setting was made for exactly for our group, and we were treated uh, so well and uh, really blessed them as well. But it was just a great experience overall. Well, it certainly sounds like fun. So when do you head out again, next week? <laughs> I wish. I wish. Um, you know, I do have some space available in March. If somebody wants to go for a, a, a trip down there, they can get in touch with me. That might be able to be arranged. Um, but on the books, I've got uh, our Navajo Nation adventure trip from May 17 through 20. It starts in Cortez, Colorado, and goes through the Navajo Nation 
uh, to some of the more remote uh, places that are visited rarely, if ever, by anybody, especially uh, people who are outsiders. And uh, so that's going to actually end in Flagstaff uh, on, the, on the 20th, just in time for the Overland Expo. And so I've already got riders signed up for that. And if you're interested in going on that trip, it's a bargain. Uh, we'll be camping every night except the final night. And uh, we'll be stopping, you know, for food at different restaurants. And I'm also coordinating meals uh, from Navajo families that are going to host us uh, at their sheep camps or their properties and those kinds of things. So that's going to be an epic dirt adventure. I also have um, in August, August 6th through 12th, I've got the Colorado Backcountry Expedition, which is six days and seven nights. We're going to be doing uh, the Colorado Backcountry Discovery Route as, as well as some of our favorite Colorado uh, pass routes um, that we love, um, lodgings included, uh, with this trip, and uh, encourage folks to check that out on our webpage. We're offering MedJet Assist, which we believe is is probably uh, the best um, evacuation and, and repatriation insurance that you can buy. I know it's been mentioned uh, here and, in, and on uh, on the Raw uh, podcast last week, um, but if they can go to our site and go and go to the MedJet link and, and get that link and uh, uh, we encourage our, our, any of our riders that are going to go on our trips to use that just in case. Uh, every, every, every rider had it on our Copper Canyon, Canyon trip, but none of us had to use it, uh, which, is a great, which is a great thing. Well, it's all available at your website, good-adv.com. And the nice thing about this is, and as we've said many times before, is that the, the profits for this are going to help sustainable charities. And that's the great thing about it. That's the amazing thing is that um, when you're buying one of your trips, they're going on with you or buying a product from your website, that's what the money's going for. Yeah, and I especially want to support the, the school down in Batapila. So that is uh, that is my my project for Good ADV uh, this year. You know, our, certainly our Copper Canyon trips uh, uh, that we're going to have um, we're going to have one in November. Uh, so if folks are really interested in doing going to the Copper Canyon. Um, get in touch with me because I'm going to start booking actually in the next few weeks for those trips next year. They were so they're so epic that uh, I want to offer them, and we're going to go um, three times next year. Uh, one time is going to be a less adventurous route, if you will, uh, not a lot of like you know bike breaking dirt, but more of a uh, tarmac friendly scenario. Um, but two other ones are going to be especially uh, as as especially as challenging as this one was, uh, maybe even a little bit more. Um, so uh, we're excited to offer those in the future. That sounds great, JJ. Thanks very much, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Jim. I've been speaking with J.J. Lewis from The Good Adventure Company, and we support The Good Adventure Company because of what they do. They're raising money for sustainable charities like Lost for a Reason. So consider them when you're thinking about buying, especially when you're thinking about buying soft bags. But as you can hear, they also run these trips, which sound absolutely fantastic. Also, check out Lost for a Reason at lostforareason.org. An excellent thing to get behind, and a lot of people who are into adventure riding are doing just that. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. 
and Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it can inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and get this, it has a lifetime warranty, which is brand new. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to fit in your saddlebag, and the crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves. They know what you need when you're out exploring the world. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, or PSSOR, provides world-class motorcycle training. Learn proper off-road riding techniques from the pros at PSSOR for your dirt bike, dual sport, or large adventure bike, and increase your skill and confidence so you're ready to tackle your next adventure. Visit www.pssor.com. That's www.pssor.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. I want to give special thanks to our advertisers, Max BMW, Best Rest Products, PSSOR, Arrow Stitch, Giant Loop, and of course, our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin. Now, if you haven't already listened to it, you've got to drop by and check out our new show. Remember, it's a separate show. It's called ARR Raw, and it's the roundtable discussions that we sit around and discuss, well, motorcycle and travel and all kinds of stuff. You're going to like it because it's it's totally unscripted and very personal, too. You'll hear these um, travelers that are really experienced people in the world of travel and motorcycles, and you'll hear opinions and ideas, and you'll hear them even talk back and forth. Some of them even change their opinions because of the conversations that happen. So drop by the website, www.adventure riderradio.com forward slash raw or just drop by the main page and you'll see the posting there for raw and you can click onto that and listen to the show now remember you have to subscribe separately to raw it's it's just a it's a completely different show so make sure that you do that click on the subscribe button go to itunes or wherever it is you download your podcast search for arr raw and subscribe to that separately don't forget, we love your comments. We love getting them and show suggestions that people send us. You can do it at the website. Click on the comment button or you can uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. On Twitter, we're at ADV Rider Radio. And on Facebook, just search for Adventure Rider Radio. And don't forget to like our page if you haven't already. And I want to remind you to come see us record Raw live August 26th in the cusp, British Columbia. That's at the Horizons Unlimited uh, Hub Meet. The Hub Meet's great to begin with, but uh, we're going to do this live recording. We've never done it before, so it should be a lot of fun. It's a bit of an experiment, and some of the panelists that are normally on the show will actually physically be there, uh, definitely Grant and myself, and um, others will be connected through the internet. And as the audience, you're going to have a chance to have some sort of input to the show, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Come out and see it. We're going to be there Friday, August 26th at 1 p.m. Go to horizonsunlimited.com to check out the details. Uh, it's the Can West Meet, and um, it's happening at Nakus. Remember, August 26, 2016. If you like what we're doing, you want to keep the show free, you want to keep it coming the way it is, our model is based on having a mix of advertising and donations coming in. So please, if you like what we're doing, drop by the website, click on the donate button, and send us what you can. We really appreciate it, and it certainly helps things go around here. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. I'm Jim Martin. See you next week. Hi, this is Jeff Thomas, and you're listening to... Adventure Rider Radio.